as I said, this, this, this fall we are, we are going through the, the book Gentle and Lowly in our small groups. Uh, we're also going to be preaching through this book. Uh, we're going to be preaching on the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers every Sunday uh, in the coming weeks as we go through this book together. I find that like we, we learn so much more when we're all on the same page, and reading a resource like this together, it really grows us in our faith. So we're going to be going through this uh, Sunday mornings. We're going to go through this in our small groups. But what we are, what, what we are, the core question we're asking when we, when we look at a book like Gentle and Lowly is, how can, we, how can we expect to be received by God when we come to him? How can we expect God to, to treat us? What, what will his attitude towards us be when we come to him? Who, who is God in his deepest heart? You know, that Matthew eleven twenty nine passage, who is God in his deepest heart? And what is his heart for us, the people that he has made? These are the questions we're going to be looking at in Gentle and Lowly. Uh, the word heart gets thrown around quite a bit. So biblically speaking, you know, the, the heart is the center of the entire being of a person. That's what we're talking about. The essence of a person, the, the soul of a person. Uh, the heart is used as a shorthand for us in all of our complexity, in what we say and what we do and what motivates us to say and do the things we, we say and do. The heart is the central animating feature of all who we are and tells us who a person is in their heart. So we all have many different characteristics. God also has characteristics. We, we call them attributes when it turns, comes to God. We have all these characteristics, but who are we? What is driving the car? Uh, what is the, God's heart? What, what drives God? What, what motivates God? What is God's heart for his people? You know, God says many things. The Bible says many things about who God is, but the, we're asking the question, who is God in his essence, and how can a person expect to be received by God when they come to him? That's the question we're answering. Asking. I think this is a really important question, and, I, and uh, part, of the, part of the reason is sometimes we have the right thoughts about God, but it never makes it into our, into our hearts, to the center of our being. We've, we might believe that we are forgiven and free and saved as we sung about this morning and as David talked about that if it doesn't make it from our minds into our hearts into the center of our being it doesn't affect our life it doesn't affect our behavior we can believe the right things but in our heart of hearts believe something different and that's a scary thought to, to think that you could believe the right things about God but in your heart not really believe them when it comes right down to it we want to we want to get to a place where we can really understand God in his heart I remember a time uh, many years ago I called a Christian brother of mine, and I apologize if I told this story before because this is a very important story in my life, and that's the only reason I'm telling it again. You know, I called a Christian brother in desperation because I had just been pulled over and ticketed by, uh, by, for speeding, and I was speeding because I was distracted. I was distracted because I was broken. Very, very broken. You know, I had... Um, as a Christian, had just not lived up to what I, what I believed, and uh, I felt like a real failure. I felt so tempted. I, I felt like I need to talk to somebody and confess to somebody about my, my struggle as a sinner and a sufferer right now. And uh, then I, I but, but like so many of us, I shoved that thought aside and said, oh, you know, not, not really. I don't need to do that. That's not that important. But it would keep coming back to me. When I got pulled over for speeding, I felt like God was pulling me over and saying, stop. Stop resisting uh, talking to a brother in Christ. You know, you need to get through this. So I called my brother in Christ, and uh, 
I didn't really know what exactly to expect, but I knew that the next step for me was calling somebody to talk about um, my failure and how I was feeling. So I called my friend. You know, the, the desperation got me past the, the, the feelings of possible rejection I could experience at the hands of my friend. Um, it got me past just about everything. I just needed to get this, these feelings out. So when my friend arrived at my apartment, I pretty much just broke down and, and confessed my sins to him. There were several different areas of my life in which I was sinning and, and doing what I knew was wrong. And I was tortured by this. And something very surprising happened when I confessed my sins to this brother. He began to, to, to cry with me. And I was weeping. You know, my heart was broken. And he, he began to feel, it seemed, empathy for how, how I was doing and my, my own pain. And then, something that was very unexpected, he said, do you have a Bible? I said, yeah, I have a Bible. He pulled out the Bible and began to read the Bible to me. In my, in my, in my tears, in my puddles on the floor, I, I'll just share some of the passages he read over me. Isaiah 1.18. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. To my soul in that moment, that, that just gave me so much hope. Romans 5.8, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 1.9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. In our, our special verse of, of, the, of the study, Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30 Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Romans 8, 31 to 39. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Verse 38, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Talk about an amazing pouring out of truth on my, on my shattered and parched soul. You know, hearing my friend and the boys I'd known for many years crying and sharing these verses over me, they, they washed over me like a waterfall. And I knew the heart of Christ for me in that moment. And I knew that nothing could take away God's love for me. And I knew that God loved me in the midst of my sin and my anxieties. So walls, walls fell down for me. I was surprised by the love and grace that I received from God and from my friend. I was surprised that he was reading Bible passages over me. That surprised me. That's not a typical everyday thing for most of us. It may have been the single most unexpected yet perfect moment of being pastored by someone else who knew me quite well. And as that waterfall of cleansing gave way, I, I felt the love of God again beating on me then like the sun, like, like the sun on a boulder. You know how it gets filled with that heat 
of the day, and it's like charged like a battery. I just felt God's love. I knew that God loved me despite all my shortcomings. I knew that God's grace was sufficient for me, and that nothing could separate me from the love of Christ. So this is, this is a revelation that Jesus gave to me in my deepest moment of need. And it's something that I bring, I call back to mind again and again. You know, David talked this morning about the sins we, we commit today, the sins we will commit tomorrow that we haven't imagined doing yet, and, and Jesus forgives us of them all. That is the kind of truth that I encountered on that day. That despite, that Jesus loves me in my sins. While I was still a sinner, he died for me. Jesus knew how I would stumble as, as in, in many ways, as a, as a leader, a pastor, a husband, before I got married or became the pastor of a church. He knew everything. And he still called me to these things. So I want to I let you in on this open secret. A secret, and I say it's an open secret because it's found in the scriptures as clear as day for those who read the Bible carefully. As complicated a thing is as our idea of who God might be, Scripture guarantees and proves time and time again that when a person comes to God in humility, heavily burdened with a consciousness of their own sin and their inability to move forward without a touch from God, that God always receives that person. He always receives that person right where they're at. Every time, always, without fail, God receives that person. God gives grace to the humble and those who are humbled. Every time. God helps that person. Every time. Do you believe that this morning? This is good news. Really good news. So many books have been written about how to <laughs> coerce and convince God to do the things that we'd like him to do in our lives. It's as simple as coming to him in humility. He's irresistibly drawn to the humble of heart, and they will find rest for their souls in Jesus. No sincere person who comes to God in humility will have to wonder whether God will receive them. Humility could also look like, God, I don't actually want this, but I want to want this. That's another kind of humility. You don't feel that, that experience like I had when I got pulled over, that feeling of absolute brokenness. There is a level where you understand with your mind, God gives grace to the humble. I know I'm not in that place right now. I know I'm walking away from God. Jesus, help me to want, to want this in my life. That's another form of humility. In other words, there's, when you come to God in humility, one way or another, he will, he will by no means turn anyone away. That's good news. I think for those people that come to God in humility, there is a guarantee of a revelation of God's love and grace over their lives. I said earlier the phrase, for those who take the time to read the Bible carefully. You know, I say this because much of the time we allow skeptics and people that don't even believe in our faith, in our culture, to tell us how our God is a contradiction. How God isn't even congruent with himself. People that, are, that do not even know God, they remind us of the most confusing parts of the Bible, the ones that they've read, and try to plant doubts in our minds regarding God's heart for us. And I feel like many times the goal is to show us how our faith is ridiculous and that God is simply a conglomeration of primitive people and their imaginations. No better than a God of Greek mythology like Zeus. Now we are told that you know, God is steeped in wrath and that he lashes out for any and every reason against people who fail to live up to his ideals. 
We're told that Christianity and religion in general is the source of all the world's miseries. I hear this all the time. If Christianity, if we simply stopped believing in God, we would have a shot at a world of peace. That's been proven time and time again in history to be false. Some of these lies that are told us in the culture are based on half-truth. Some are completely false and almost completely opposite of the truth. And for this reason, they can be very deceptive in the hearts of even the most sincere and humble Christians. We must get into the Bible for ourselves to see who God is, to see who God's, what God's heart is for his people. There's so much opportunity to be led astray and to not realize that the one who called us is the one who says, I will not turn away anyone who comes to me. Right? We need to get into the Bible for ourselves. We need to get rid of this woefully unbalanced picture of God that we tend to develop when we're on our own or just listening to other voices and get back to this close and even intimate relationship that God desires to have with each one of us. So we're going to do an exercise. We're going to peel back a layer on who God is, looking at a passage, James 4, 1 to 10. And I'm looking at this as an exercise and seeing what it says about God's heart and about our hearts. So we can test how we read the Bible and what we choose to emphasize when we read the Bible. So this is the scripture we'll be going through uh, piece by piece. And we're asking the question, what does this say about God's heart? What does it say about us? And what do we emphasize when we read it? So James 4, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. They may spend what you get on your pleasures. These first words of this passage show us what the problem is. The problem is not God or how we can expect to be received by God or God's heart. The problem is that instead of living by faith and trust in God for our provision, we instead fight, quarrel, and even kill because of the covetous desires that are within us. This passage tells us that our hearts uh, are, are turned in the wrong direction more than anything. Our hearts are often not grateful for God's blessings. Instead, we covet the things we do not have that perhaps our neighbors have. I was laughing when we, we built a shed in our yard, and then three days later, our neighbors built, bought a giant shed and had it dropped in their yard. I'm like, oh, that's so weird. Are we the Joneses? Are we the family that people are trying to keep up with? Um, it may, just made me laugh. I think it was just a coincidence. But we, co- we covet things we do not have that perhaps our neighbors have. And James, he, in this passage, he does not condemn us for having needs or even wants. And thus, neither does God. This is God's word to us. What James says is, the root of all of this, pro- this problem of um, jealousy and quarreling and, and, and covetousness, the root of this is that we do not ask God for the things we need in the first place. That's what this passage says. We don't ask God at all. We don't bring God into the picture at all. And when we finally do come around to asking God for the things that we need, we often ask him with a prideful attitude. Something that perhaps in our culture we'd call an attitude of entitlement. James calls this attitude wrong motives, that we might spend what God gives us on our own pleasures. Now this prideful way of approaching God is rooted in getting the things we want for ourselves, but leaving God out of our lives altogether is a huge mess. But notice, none of this first part of this passage tells us about the heart of God 
for those who come to him in humility. It tells us what our own hearts do when we either exclude God altogether or only ask God when we absolutely have to with selfish motives in mind. James continues in verse 4. He says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the Spirit he has caused to dwell in us? James continues in this passage by naming the sin that underlies the fighting, the quarreling, the jealousy, the covetousness, and those attitudes of entitlement. James calls these sins together adultery, which is what God calls these sins in the Old Testament when his people sin against him. When his people turn from him for the umpteenth umpteenth time, unlimited times, um, they ignore him or come to him with severe attitudes of entitlement. There's a story in that's told in Numbers 11. Uh, God, first of all, God delivers his people from slavery in Egypt. That, this, this we know as you know, the Passover and the deliverance through the Red Sea. And so they are in the desert. There is no, there's nothing growing in the desert. There's no food. God miraculously, they call it him with their needs. He miraculously provides manna for them, which means what is it in the original language? This kind of weird, um, grainy stuff that's on, on, the, on the ground, and they could get, harvest the stuff and it was enough nutrition for them to get through this life in the desert. But eventually, the people start whining about the manna. And they say, you know, we really miss the meat we used to have, the quail we used to have in Egypt. And actually, I'm going to read you this uh, verbatim. Numbers 11.4. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also, the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. That's a really crazy thing to say to the God who delivered you from slavery and bondage in Egypt, where you were, again, slaves, being worked harder and harder and harder. And then to be delivered by God, given food, and then they're complaining about the type of food he gave them. You know, James says that the human heart is naturally a cheating heart cheating on a relationship with God through friendship with the world. People are driven by coveting what their neighbors have. People are being driven by fighting and quarreling, by selfish desires for more, by not appreciating the blessings God's given us, but looking beyond them and wailing for the things we don't have. James says these, these Christ followers leave God out of their lives altogether. And when they, it's so bad that when they come around to asking God, they do not receive what they ask for because they ask with wrong motives, like those people in the wilderness. Uh, and, and wrong motives here is selfish, um, impure motives. To wail against God like this is like a person who's committing adultery, asking their spouse for some money to go to a movie with their, with their lover. That's what it's like. You know, it's just wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. You cannot ask with pure motives you're fundamentally cheating on your relationship with God. But once again, notice that none of this first part of James 4 tells us about the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers. It only tells us of the typical tried and true story of our own human hearts and their tendencies to leave God out of our lives or to come to God with a prideful attitude um, when we do come to him. Let's, let's uh, turn to uh, begin again in verse 6. 
And this is just a great sentence. But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. This is the heart of God on display in this passage. After this painful teaching of, of the human heart and its wickedness and turning away from God and its adulterous ways, James shows us the better way. Just let verse 6 sink into your, into your heart. He gives us more grace. He gives us more grace. I'd say put that on a post-it in your car or in your bathroom mirror or your desk at work. You know, this is God's heart for people that turn to him in humility. He gives us more grace. Even those sinners described earlier in this passage of James 4 who are just totally off the wall, um, leaving God out of their lives and then asking him with impure motives and just fighting and quarreling and murdering one another, even those people, if they will, will humble themselves and come to God, this applies, verse 6 applies to them. He gives more grace. That's God's heart. That's what God desires to give. That's why when Jesus put this on display when he was uh, pronouncing the woes over the different cities that did not, um, did not recognize him as Messiah and receive salvation. And finally, when he wept over Jerusalem, he says to them, how I long to gather your people underneath my wings like a mother hen gathers her chicks under her, under her wings. But you were unwilling. You were unwilling. You were too proud to come to me. But for the person that comes to God, God has more grace. He gives more grace. God's, that is God's heart for sinners and sufferers. He always has more grace. He gives more, uh, verse 6, he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives favor to the humble. Some of that's very, very um, gracious of James is to pretty much give us a step-by-step tried and true method for drawing near to God. A method that cannot fail. Imagine that. A method that cannot fail. So when you snap out of your selfishness, when you snap out of your, your um, pushing God away, here's the step-by-step process for coming near to God. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. That's, God, that's God's heart. That's the heart of Christ. Draw near to God, and God draws near to you. He doesn't need to be coerced or, or, or chided or manipulated into doing this. This is his heart to draw near to us. This is his heart on display for all of us. That's a promise. So are you still struggling with sin and temptation? Submit to God and resist the devil. And it says in this passage, he will flee from you. That's a promise. How long will it take? I don't know, but if you submit to God and resist the devil, the devil will flee from you. You know, do the hard work of understanding 
how you came to be, how you came to be the person that you are, your, your sinful ways, your brokenness. You know, confess those before God. Humble yourself and wash your hands of your sin. Go from being double-minded to single-minded, or as the, as the original language in the Bible says, from being two-hearted to one-hearted. Actually grieve the sin that's come between you and God. All this is part of humbling ourselves before God. And moving away from that attitude of entitlement, realizing that we did not earn the reception that we're getting. But it's all a gift from God, the God who gives more grace. Anyone who comes to God in this way, he will not turn away. And here is God's heart for us. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. If you are weary, if you are burdened, if you are stuck in your sin, humble yourself before the Lord. He will lift you up. He will lift you up. So what, les what lessons can we learn about the human heart from James 4? It's that we often leave God out of our lives altogether and are driven mostly by our selfishness and evil desires. As humans, we have a tendency to get sucked into the world system which denies that God even exists or questions who he is to the point where they don't believe. As, as humans, we fight like crazy internally and with other people based on our internal battling desires. And the violence we see in the world is all a part of this manifesting in the real world. The passage teaches us that sometimes when we finally ask God for something, we don't receive it because we ask with purely selfish motives and with an attitude of entitlement that whatever we get from God, we will use for ourselves. This is a sorry state of being. This is the human heart. Um, it tends to, to, to move away from God. But what does James 4, 1-10 teach us about God's heart for us. It teaches us that while we were lost in our sinful ways, we ultimately do not have what we need in life because we do not ask God at all. The implication is that God is generous and a giver at heart. He's generous. He's a giver. He wants to bless his people. But we're so lost in our sin that we don't even ask him for the things we need the very basic things. The passage teaches us that God is jealous for our full attention in a very appropriate way, in the same way that a spouse should be jealous for their husband or wife's romantic attention, that that person would not give it to somebody else. God is jealous for our attention to be the only God in our lives. The passage teaches us that despite our sinfulness and lostness, that God gives us more grace. It teaches us that God opposes the proud in heart, that gives grace upon grace to the humble. It teaches us that as we resist evil and draw near to God, evil always eventually flees, and God always draws near to us. And it teaches us that God always reacts to our humility by lifting us up. This is a guarantee from the Lord. And when we submit ourselves to him, resist the devil, the devil will flee from us. We draw near to God, he will draw near to us. This is an amazing transaction. As you listen to a passage like James 4, 1 to 10, you know, what gets filter out, filtered out or emphasized about God's heart? What gets filtered out or emphasized about human hearts, about our collective human heart and our tendencies? Let's not miss out on who God is by believing everything we hear about God. God does not have to be convinced or coerced to love us and give us more grace when we need it. God has always been a generous giver. 
who loves to give good gifts to his children and gives the Holy Spirit to anyone who asks him. In the coming weeks, we're going to be reading passages of Scripture, passages of scripture very closely in context to come to know the one who describes himself as gentle and humble in heart and who offers us rest for our weary and burdened souls. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Heavenly Father, we're here because we want to know you. We're not, we're not here for any other reason than we want to know you, and we want to know your people. I pray, Lord, for every heart here, that we would see the way you're drawing all of us into your presence by your grace. Lord, that we would receive that reception by coming to you in humility. For any of us stuck, like I was in my, my time of great need many years ago, I pray for your great deliverance. I pray for, for that friend, for that, um, for that moment of revelation where they can come to know your heart for them and for others. Lord, we bless you, we praise you for who you are. Thank you for giving us more grace. In Jesus' name, amen.